let's kick off this first panel session in blockchain policy debate resolve. Blockchain is essential to the next generation healthcare practice and systems. Our moderator will be William Baker, who is the director of the Global Debate Fund at New York University. And our panelists include Brian Bellendorf, the executive director of Hyperledger, John Halamka, chief information officer at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Tim Mackey, associate professor of anesthesiology and global public health at the University of California, San Diego, and last but not least, we have Amanda Stanhouse, a PhD student at the University of Michigan. Feel free to take it away. Thank you. Oh, yeah. So he's sitting between us to prevent the fist fight. <laughs> <laughs> Insert joke here about how New Jersey Transit is not yet on the blockchain. Uh, that's why I was just in time. But I'm happy I was just in time. Good morning, all. My name is Will Baker, and I'll be moderating the debate. My, my son's 12 years old, and he, I asked him last night what would be a way to kind of make this debate more interesting to the audience. And as he looked up from his video game for the required 12 seconds, he said, Dad, just have them debate to the death. That will keep the audience's attention. I, I raised that possibility with our debaters this morning. They were not, they, they said no. Uh, so we will uh, actually continue with the debate as planned. Uh, you were told the resolved. My job is simply to keep the ships running and make sure that we stay on time. So we will begin with the first affirmative speech for eight minutes and we will go on from there. To understand a few caveats before we start, first, uh, please be aware that the debaters have not chosen their sides, or they have agreed to take these sides regardless of their advocacy. So don't hold them to what their opinions are uh, because it is only for the purpose of, of the debate and may not express their general ideas. Uh, second, as at all conferences and events, please set phones and other electronic devices to vibrate or some other setting uh, so as to not uh, interrupt the debate. And finally, we're, we welcome uh, comments at the end, but during the debate itself, uh, if folks could just uh, pay attention to the bears and let them have their engagement, uh, we would appreciate it. Uh, so without that, I turn it over to the first affirmative. Great, well thank you. Um, so I thought it might be worth uh, uh, starting with a kind of a definition of what next generation health services might be. Uh, and I apologize for reading this off my phone. I wanna to try to be concise and so wrote this, uh, parts of this ahead of time. Uh, but let's start with a couple of outcomes I think we all kind of wanna see. One would be patient-centric health information sharing or at the very least patients at, involved as a peer, both in the architecture and in the actual end user experience of managing health data. Data-driven clinical decision-making and health research with informed patient consent for the use of their data uh, and the resulting reduced errors that would come from having all the data there and having it be high quality. Uh, significant optimization in insurance coverage determination, claims processing and settlement, those are huge issues for us, uh, and substantial reduction in drug discovery costs, uh, prescription pharmaceutical abuse, and pharma supply chain corruption. Um, and, you know, I want a pony as well. So, like, you know, I know this is like a, a wish list of some pretty impossible things, but I think our case is that in order to really achieve these and make a dent that we haven't made in the last 10 years in these meaningfully, we need blockchain technology. Um, now, let's start, let's move on to 
to what, a, what we're actually talking about when we mean blockchain technology, because we're not necessarily talking about solving this with Bitcoin, about doing an ICO to solve this, you know, all these things at the same time. Cryptocurrencies may play a role in this at some point, uh, at the very least for settlement and bending um, uh, 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 interests in the right direction. But let's really talk about what, I, what we consider kind of the two major components of blockchain technology, which are distributed ledgers and then the smart contracts you can build on top of those distributed ledgers, right? Shared multi-master databases, uh, re uh, resilient to hostile actors, uh, write-only, immutable to the degree that anything broadcast to a community can't be erased off of everybody's brains, right? Uh, off of everyone's copy of that system. Uh, using cryptography to uh, enforce all sorts of rigorous uh, validation and checks to make sure everybody has the same version of the truth, right? And then smart contracts on that are a way of automating certain business processes uh, to a tremendous degree um, and bring programmatic programmatic means to uh, processes that are often left today to paper-bound, human-enforced uh, processes, right? Um, a, lot of, a lot of things that you can't do with ordinary uh, centralized systems. Um, I, uh, and let's also focus away from the proof-of-work style uh, uh, blockchain technologies and towards ones that are really more about uh, actors in an ecosystem working off of intrinsic motivations uh, for all, you know, to go and achieve all these different health outcomes they want to see. Let's also realize we're not talking about a singular the blockchain, we're talking about networks of chains, networks of ledgers that are richly interwoven with each other, uh, where there's different governance models, maybe different uh, technical differences between them, but where uh, uh, we weave these together in some interesting way. Um, let's also emphasize we're not talking about putting patient data or any other PHI directly on a blockchain. What we're talking about is using distributed ledgers uh, to uh, record pointers, hashes, uh, distributed identifiers perhaps, uh, uh, encrypt metadata maybe, although that's a question as to whether that also counts as PII or not, um, but where we store the actual sensitive data off-chain, uh, but use the ledger as a way to uh, verify the integrity of these claims, make sure we have a complete record, all of that, right? So why are these technologies essential in a way that, you know, uh, HTML wasn't necessarily essential, uh, in a way, or, or other kind of point solutions aren't necessarily essential? Um, well, I, we, there's, there's, and let's also realize there's really no blockchain use case that can't adequately be served uh, in one way or another by a central API service. But who runs it, right? Who do we trust at the, uh, in any of the above scenarios to run the whole thing? It would be Google, Apple, Facebook, uh, Epic, I'll throw in. Um, I, 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 we, use blockchain tech in low, we use blockchain technology in low trust environments. Just how low may be debatable, but no one would debate that the healthcare industry has had trust issues for a long, long time. So to achieve any of these above, we need blockchain technology. Why? Blockchain technology is the key to user-centric, uh, or what some people call self-sovereign, digital identity. And that is, uh, uh, and there's, there's a lot of people working on these different technologies. At Hyperledger, we have something called Hyperledger Indy, uh, tied in with the Sovereign Network, many of you have uh, perhaps learned, uh, know about. And this is key, we believe, to uh, truly portable patient identifiers, right? Uh, get rid of all the mess we have around trying to match your version of a patient with somebody else's version of a patient, um, uh, but also vest in them. Uh, the ability to manage their health data as if from a healthcare wallet of some sort. Um, I, I, and give them the ability to decide who to share that with, to decide as well to stop sharing that with, the, say, the doctor that they visited on vacation um, and who no longer needs complete access to their prescription history. That durable control matched with a user wallet uh, uh, that tracks those grants and withdrawals of consent will open the gates uh, to greater health information sharing and fewer clinical errors. Are we at eight minutes? Yeah, you have three left. You're good. I'm just okay. showing you time signals. Oh, three minutes. Okay, great. Um, uh, uh, 
that and health information sharing in the past from the patients has been one of the barriers uh, uh, to, to greater health information sharing. Uh, uh, it's been held up uh, not only by patients but also by other institutions uh, who have long been encouraged, if not even regulatorily required, to share data with each other. Uh, um, they've, that has been held up on issues of trust, issues of consent. What will you do with this data once I hand it off to you? Distributed ledger technology is the only technology that has emerged in the last 10 years that can credibly claim to have made a dent uh, in answering those kinds of questions in other industries. Moving health insurance processes to DLT um, is already underway. I mean, we'll hear from Ted uh, at PocketDoc. Uh, Change Healthcare is also now in production with a platform that processes millions of transactions a day. Um, and this is essential to getting a bigger industry-wide automation play than what any single vendor can do with a centralized API approach, because no one wants to have to trust that one central vendor. Um, this is how we weave these systems more closely together uh, and get past this kind of paperwork, fax, fax machine-driven process that we have today for a lot of how health insurance is managed and processed. If designed right, and you know, asterisks all over the place, right? If designed right, smart contracts and blockchain logic can help mitigate or even prevent large categories of fraud and ab abuse in a way that no ordinary centralized API service can. What we see with the public cryptocurrency networks in, in the prevention of double spend, right? The, the blockchain logic prevents somebody from spending the same token twice or handing off a water bottle, the same water bottle, to two different people at the same time. Um, that same kind of validation logic can be brought to bear on any of these uh, distributed ledger networks in a way to prevent whole categories, not just of reconciliation uh, uh, failure, right? Um, that has to be mitigated later and is expensive to deal with and involves humans, um, but to actually prevent people from, say, billing for services that the patient knows has never been provided. One more minute. Perfect. Um, uh, and finally, uh, pharmaceutical supply chain projects involving blockchain tech are already underway. They're already showing promise. In fact, uh, the new regulations, what are those called, uh, that are mandating better traceability in the pharmaceutical supply Drug chain? Drug supply chain security. Right. right. Uh, will practically mandate the establishment of shared databases for tracking of individual uh, uh, drugs through the, through, the, through the supply chain processes. And getting bit, uh, more informed um, uh, clinical trial uh, participant consent for subsequent uh, trials, subsequent reanalysis of that data in an efficient way will bring down the cost uh, of drug discovery. This, none of this is magic pixie dust. Um, this will not solve some of the harder interoperability or business model problems. And it does depend upon creating a compelling consumer user experience for managing health records in a self-sovereign way. But without blockchain tech, we will continue to spiral on incremental advances that still do nothing to tackle the trust issues in the healthcare industry that stymies so much forward progress. <laughs> Yay. Well done. Obviously, you had some time on the train to time that out exactly. I did not, I um, swear. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing that the negative has some questions. I'll have four minutes to ask them. Great. Uh, uh, so I uh, agree with uh, with Brian. <laughs> this debate's off to a good start um, about how uh, blockchain is not going to solve everything. And as you'll see from our uh, opening statement uh, in less than four minutes, we're taking a more pragmatic approach um, to things. But just a couple of comments based off of uh, that statement. Uh, so data driven. Decision making. Um, this is not uh, these issues um, are not. Uh, 
solely based off blockchain, but I am concerned um, regarding the reliabilities of sensors, just as Dr. Halamka uh, mentioned in his opening statement, and I would also be curious uh, his view of the role of doctor in a future state that's uh, relying on these uh, decision-making tools, as well as um, Brian's discussion of information sharing um, and his discussion of issues of trust and privacy. And there's actually been um, a recent article by Julia Adler Milstein that really uh, elaborate, uh, researched the um, barriers to health information exchange. And there's been a lot of work, especially on the legal side of addressing privacy issues. And so uh, that's really uh, seems to be a misnomer for the business case uh, for health information exchange um, that is lacking. Um, well, let me let Brian jump in and answer the okay. first question kind of address those. Cool. So uh, what is the role in the presence of the doctor in, in, the, in, that, in that model uh, in terms of what your viewpoints would be? So, uh, you know, patients have had a statutory right to their health data, you know, for, for what, 20 years now, uh, and, and in a preferably digital form, and, uh, and, and yet the, the systems have, have been reluctant to give it to that, uh, give them that. You know, you might be able to ask for your x-ray data and get handed a CD-ROM. Uh, good luck to being able to read that, right? Uh, but, but we haven't really seen a bend uh, toward, I mean, we've had, we've had the, the, the incentives, it seems. We've had the motivations. It seems that patients, especially caregivers, of patients or patients with chronic conditions have long, uh, you know, pleaded for this kind of information and are, are stuck carrying around boxes of paper records behind them, right? Uh, so why, where does that failure come from? And I think it's come from a drive towards big data uh, as kind of a, a, a paramount kind of thing, especially to drive AI models. Um, uh, and the, the kind of verbiage around big data is the new oil uh, uh, causes people to think, well, therefore I must hoard it, uh, therefore I must not copy it, otherwise I lose my defensive mode. And so I, that, where I think, I think we've had challenges is when data has been seen as this thing that has to be hoarded and protected. And that uh, let me let, let me on might be able with to the second question as well. Uh, and I also am, uh, we're going to be questioning um, the role of patient consent um, and whether people are going to be able to, or patients are fully understand the implications of how their data will be used when they're initially consenting um, at data collection regarding secondary use. So we all can see that there are some issues related to, to patient consent as we move forward uh, with blockchain. If you want, I can jump sure. in. So of course, the reluctance to exchange data between providers or providers and patients has nothing to do with technology. It's everything about psychiatry. <laughs> and that is the Office of Civil Rights has told us if I hand off the data to the patient and then the data goes onto Facebook, I'm not going to be actually prosecuted as long as I can prove that I handed it off to the patient and they spread it thereafter. So this is why I think we'll argue that having a trust layer that is an audit trail that is immutable will actually be protective and help with the psychiatry issues. <laughs> Did you have any other questions? Uh, no, I think we can start with uh, our opening presentation. Okay. Fair enough. Now the negative presentation for eight minutes. Great. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Amanda Stanhouse, and uh, while I am a PhD student at the University of Michigan studying health technology and data privacy, previously for over two years I was on JP Morgan's blockchain team as a strategist where I open saw, oversaw the uh, open sourcing of uh, Quorum, which is one of the premier versions, privacy-preserving versions of Ethereum, and I'm joined um, by Professor Tim Mackey from the uh, University of California, San Diego, and I would say neither of us are naysayers 
naysayers as uh, we didn't get to choose our team. Um, so negative is a bit of a strong word, but I think we're taking uh, this opportunity to voice a pragmatic approach and bring light to to some potential uh, unattended consequences. Uh, I would like to echo Brian in uh, address, uh, addressing the myth that you know there's only one Bitcoin blockchain and it's not uh, applicable to uh, healthcare. I view uh, Bitcoin as kind of a blessing because everyone knows about blockchain. That's usually uh, your first introduction, but it's also a curse because it really limits uh, your ability to um, understand the the full implications of uh, this technology. Um, and so instead, how I like to think about it as a um, uh, a version of, of Google Docs, except for the fact that Google doesn't own uh, and the uh, data is uh, data ownership and management is retained um, by the user. And uh, if you think about it in this more general uh, database approach, then there are a variety of healthcare use cases as seen in the range of use cases that you'll be hearing from today, um, ranging from, for example, hashed health professional credentials exchange to chronicles uh, pharmaceutical supply chain tracking, and then, um, of course, everyone's fam uh, favorite uh, patient-centric EHRs, um, which I believe uh, will will come, but are a long way away. Um, and so uh, what is a good way to approach, uh, uh, have a pragmatic approach, is um, Tim's framework that you'll be hearing about later today. And it's very similar to something that we used at JP Morgan, where you focus on specific use cases uh, where you need resilience, providence, traceability, um, and data management. And so there are a variety of de design decisions uh, that you need to make as you're um, assessing whether a use case should be uh, is appropriate for a blockchain-based application regarding um, the type of network, such as a private or a hybrid model, um, and then uh, making decisions regarding data sharing uh, on-chain or off-chain storage, governance, and then as well as types of consensus mechanisms. Quorum, for example, that we open source at JP Morgan um, has three options that you can decide between. And so blockchain um, really allows for flexibility of uh, fit for purpose for a specific use case, um, but it's not, I believe, a magic pixie dust uh, was, was the term, um, but instead focusing on um, a specific goal and a specific use case, um, and then potentially having that option to use a token if necessary. Um, and so the, the key that we wanted to drive home today is to prepare for this philosophical shift uh, from current uh, centralization to a decentralized uh, industry. And while that's usually also written off um, and, and kind of dismissed, I don't think that that is a pipe dream. I do believe that as hospitals and uh, uh, healthcare providers continue to have their databases hacked, that uh, data will become seen as a liability. And blockchain, with its um, ability to to allow uh, for the separation of data ownership and, and data processing and, and services um, that uh, the industry will actually want to shift uh, that data ownership uh, to patients and to users uh, so that then they're not responsible. Um, the uh, Dr. Gordon of Harvard and Professor uh, Christian Cannellini of MIT actually just um, uh, released an excellent article regarding healthcare um, and blockchain. And they highlighted uh, the promise of a blockchain-based infrastructure, such as digital access rules, data aggregation, data liquidity, and uh, identity, but also acknowledged the barriers such as scale, privacy and security, incentives, and key management, um, which is not just unique to healthcare, but I think um, will play a critical role 
role, uh, especially because uh, I view, and I'm sure that you would agree, that healthcare data is the, the most sensitive of all. Um, and given my uh, research interests as a sociologist, I'm most interested in the unintended consequences of patient engagement, specifically data self-management. Um, I just wanted us to get it right. I am pro a uh, patient-centric uh, uh, view of these things. And so you typically hear that uh, data will be decentralized across the system, and that's good for um, privacy and security uh, reasons, which I agree with. Um, but to say it in a different way, it's actually, data is actually centralized with the user, and it's so uh, it is the sole responsibility uh, in the ideal case uh, for the user to be responsible for their data management. Um, but I think uh, an appropriate analogy here is how are we going to manage our data when we can barely manage our privacy settings? I question uh, the general public's interest in uh, going to uh, set their privacy settings, let alone read a full privacy policy and understand the consequences um, of their actions. And so there are cognitive and structural issues. Um, I do think that uh, blockchain will correct for some of the, the structural issues, but I do question the assumption that underlines, you know, a kind of all blockchain applications that the ideal rational user will have perfect information um, and act accordingly. Um, I do think that imper imperfect information will continue uh, to exist, and so what are the consumer protections, let alone um, for those uh, non-ideal users, such as minors and elderly that are reliant on caretakers um, to help uh, manage their care, and then furthermore, uh, uh, HIPAA, for example, outlines there are times when patients shouldn't have access to their data, such as their psychotherapy notes. And so this is a technical question regarding key management in, in blockchain terms, but I do yep, uh, also view this as a policy question of consumer protections when uh, it is on the consumer to share their data accordingly and if they misshare, overshare, or share to the wrong person, um, as well as norms of uh, data sharing uh, at a more societal level. And then furthermore, if um, a user is capable of managing their data, do they care? Um, I'm kind of concerned that we could create this whole patient-centric um, infrastructure, but patients actually unless it's like easier, cheaper, and faster than what's currently out there, they give it back to a third party. And this is already being seen in the cryptocurrency um, market's reliance on exchanges and wallet providers. And so while this is not unique to healthcare, I'm raising it today because I do believe that healthcare is uh, the most sensitive data. And so uh, to turn this around, I would <laughs> uh, like to see this as an opportunity for the healthcare industry to really set standards and best practices that then can be applied um, to any industry that's adopting um, blockchain infrastructure. Um, and so to summarize, for blockchain uh, to become the next generation infrastructure for healthcare, we need to take a pragmatic approach that uh, focuses on B2B use cases that are built out in phases, um, adding more stakeholders at each, um, at each phase and, uh, and uh, patients at the end, and furthermore, to be proactive and prepare for patient-centric um, infrastructure that um, protects the patients as well. Great. Thank you very much. If you look at your agendas, there are concurrent sessions. While this debate is going on, I want to alert you to the session that starts at 940 in the West Room, Pioneerism the Delaware Way, 
blockchain uh, firsts in business, collaboration, innovation, and sustainable results. And then at 9.10, before this debate ends, again in the other room, cutting pleasantries with Ted Tanner. I'm so sorry. Thank you so very much. No problem, Tori. It's your show. We're good. Well, uh, so, so now we're given the opportunity to ask questions, and Amanda and I actually agree. We don't actually have any differences of opinion, and we're going to hug afterwards. So, but we're since, yeah, since we are taking the idea that you must, must have blockchain for the success of healthcare, let me give you the quick example and see if you can counter it. So believe it or not, Harvard physicians are sometimes sued for malpractice. I know, hard to believe. Um, and the plaintiff attorney says, give me the medical records for the last 20 years. And I say, here they are. He said, no, no, these are faked. These are altered. These are incomplete. I said, no, no, I have an audit trail. Oh, that was faked too. Yeah. So how is it, unless we employ blockchain, that I can prove to plaintiff attorneys or other regulatory compliance organizations that data is perfectly intact? So I'll counter with another use case. And this okay. is on the supply chain side. So. I came into blockchain because I'm an expert in public health, the public health space, not in the technology space. And I was actually brought in by IEEE at the beginning to look at the use case of fake medicines and how blockchain can address uh, supply chain issues. And so same question occurs. Can we prove that a medicine is where it's coming from, from the manufacturer to the wholesale market to the end uh, distribution? And is that medicine authentic? And so blockchain is a very good tool to do that, but we're putting a lot of weight on the blockchain to solve this very complex, very multi-jurisdictional problem that we've been dealing with for like 30 years. And I think that's a bit much. I think that uh, one of the important things to do at the beginning of thinking about blockchain is not looking at the technology first and then trying to fit it into a use case. It's going the opposite way. It's looking at the healthcare use case first and seeing if elements of a blockchain can, can be fit for that purpose. So in the example of the pharmaceutical supply chain, um, there's something very simple you can do to get around blockchain data provenance. You can repackage the product. And if you repackage the product with the same authentic packaging as the original product, then it may be read in through a barcode and it may look the same as if it was a non-authentic product. So a blockchain is just a tool that can enable other authentication technologies like RFID, um, like actual authentication barcoding and uh, holograms and different types of anti-counterfeiting technology. And if it's fed into the blockchain correctly, then you're gonna have good data. But you need those two points of verification. You can't just rely on a blockchain to do everything. Well, let's, and let's, let's be clear. Like, yeah. um, uh, as my friend Sheila Warren at the World Economic Forum uh, coins, so I have to give her credit every time I, I dine out on this phrase. Um, uh, you know, most technologies have a garbage in, garbage out problem, exactly, right? Yeah. Uh, blockchains have a garbage in, garbage forever problem. Uh, and <laughs> no one should presume that what gets written to a blockchain is the truth, you know, inscribed in stone and forever shall be. Uh, what gets written was simply a, a claim, a, 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 you know, evidence in some way uh, that now forms an evidence change chain, an evidence trail, right? And in other supply chain settings, you're, if you're only recording you know, directly that evidence of handoff of something with a serial number from one party to the next, you absolutely will miss the prospect of other uh, data that you can add that can uh, add to the uh, integrity of those claims. So uh, in, in various other supply chain settings, uh, IoT sen uh, data, uh, sensor data from tamper-proof sensors, uh, things that help you know,
you know, you believe, hey, this pallet of fish that uh, this boat brought in actually was caught at a certain place, certain time. All of that is used to help give a confidence score to those claims, right? And having that in the same evidence trail locks that in as part of the, 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 the chain of history. Um, and in the case of pharmaceutical uh, uh, supply chains, I would presume that you would still have inspectors, you'd still have uh, testers, you know, at, at various strategic points, not testing every single pill that came out, but enough to be able to paint a picture of, is this uh, factory likely to create good stuff? Is this uh, intermediary likely to not corrupt product on the way out? So that's sort of but thing. If I can counter real quickly. Do I get a chance? I'll, I'll, I'll let you have your response <laughs> right. later, but, but I, have, okay, I cool. have to stay on time or, or, sure. or Tori has special punishments for me okay. I'm frightened of. So. So we have some differentials, obviously, in terms of use models and questions of user executions. So we'll give the affirmative uh, side four minutes to kind of respond to those, uh, to those questions and raise other issues that they think are important. Oh, okay, certainly. Well, certainly, if I look at the challenges that I face in informatics, and especially healthcare information exchange, um, as you've pointed out, getting data to the patient, getting data provider to provider, has required technology frameworks, and those, I would argue, are mostly good enough at this point. You know, the standards have emerged, there are APIs, there are mechanisms of putting vocabulary controls, but the policy side of things and the governance side of things is what really needs the work. And I have tried. I ran 200 meetings for the Obama administration. Hits B and... Uh, hits B and hits C and all the... I work for Bush, I work for Obama, the current president, not so much. Uh, <laughs> and I can still argue, regardless of whether it's government or private sector, our real challenge with this ubiquity of information sharing and use is the capacity to track where your information began and where it has been distributed. And although, I think you said this in your opening remarks, there could be an API solution backed by some relational structure or Hadoop or God only knows what behind it. But I think society at this moment in history is beginning to think that there's something to blockchain, right? And I know in this conference it's not snake oil, it's not magic, it won't solve all our problems. But if society ends up believing that this blockchain thing is right once never a race, and therefore, and it's publicly available with openness and transparency, that it has an opportunity to change our reluctance to sharing information across these various stakeholders. So hence why, you know, again, you guys have been very compelling and very balanced as I knew you would be, uh, but I could argue that without that public trust, without the thing called blockchain, it will be hard to move the interoperability at scale strategy forward. We will now move on to uh, two minutes of cross-examination from the negative team. So uh, it's interesting because we're talking a lot about data sharing. And when I look at a lot of the use cases uh, around actual deployment of blockchain, probably you know a lot of the big questions are a very simple question. I get a lot from you know people from IBM and Intel are we can get stuff into POC, but we can't get it into production. Like it's it's that part that's very difficult. Like we stand a lot of POCs up, but it's hard to get something more large scale into production. And one of the questions that arises there in a lot of these use cases is, do we really want to uh, engage in data sharing? And so, for example, I'll go back to the supply chain use case. 
a lot of supply chain actors don't actually want to share data on the, on, on the blockchain. They don't want to share proprietary information. And so if we're not sharing data and we can't deal with this data governance discussion at the very beginning, then we may eliminate a lot of the benefits of that use case. Because if we don't have a lot of that data, it doesn't have to be on chain, but on a side chain, or at least it's, it's available so people can aggregate that data and identify where uh, you know, a breach is in the supply chain, where uh, anomaly occurs in the supply chain. Then we're not even meeting our original use case, which was to make patients safer because we can better effectuate a recall, or we can better enable pharmacovigilance, or we can better enable making sure that fake medicines don't get to patients. So that so data governance. What do you have to say about that? Actually, okay. that's a pretty big question. So what what are the solutions, or what we should, should we be looking at on that question of data sharing and what that should look like, especially given that there's are levels of resistance at, at both corporate and, and government. Go ahead. So um, in another industry, in the diamond industry, and the, uh, the reason why the diamond blockchain example is actually a really interesting and compelling one is thanks to something that happened 10 years earlier before uh, uh, Satoshi's paper, actually, I guess uh, six years earlier. In 2002, the diamond industry adopted something called the Kimberley process. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it was the diamond industry in 88 countries saying, yes, we're going to require this of you to operate in our countries and sell product in our countries. Uh, and the Kimberley process is, was an agreement by the diamond industry to provide traceability to diamonds as they flow from mine to retail. Uh, now, this, this was data sharing that none of them really wanted to do, uh, but they realized they had to do to be able to fight back concerns about blood diamonds, diamonds that have been used in the purchase of weapons, all these other kind of dark, uh, 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 dark matter, if you will, of the, of, the, of, the, of the diamond industry. But collectively, that industry said, we have to clean up our act in order to address this. Then uh, the move to a blockchain was a way to actually implement that in a way that could not be hacked. There's lots more to tell about behind that. We need similar things in the healthcare space. Um, we have. Right, so I need to move on though, okay. to, to negative, negative response. Um, in the field of debate, we call that stealing prep time, but I'll let, I'll let it go because it's Brian's first time in this kind of format. But uh, So uh, we'll now get the negative response for four minutes. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, having this kind of back and forth flows, I think, is really important. We are focusing on particular use cases. I think some of the major issues that we're talking about are, again, whether, you know, when you're thinking about a blockchain, again, a lot of times you're thinking about the technology first, and you're thinking about the use case and fitting it in. And then, you know, for people like myself, we think the opposite way. We think about the use case first and whether it fits. And so when you're making those design decisions about a blockchain, whether it's a private blockchain, whether it's a public blockchain, whether it's a hybrid blockchain, that's where the design making really comes into play and you have to fit it for purpose for that particular use case. So if we are talking about supply chain, for example, and we do want to deal with the fake medicines issue, do we need a public blockchain versus a private blockchain? And how are we going to share that data? And if we don't think of those things in tandem, then we may not have a viable use case at the end. And so that's you know, the primary concern here, I think, is not whether a blockchain is, is useful for healthcare. We all, we're all here and we're all you know, supporting that. It's whether we represent it correctly. And I think one of the main components there is, is not putting so much weight on the blockchain as being the complete solution for all our healthcare problems. Um, it's a component. It's a component with other types of technology. And the thing that I like to look at it is, is blockchain is architecture. And you can layer different things on that architecture, whether it be a smart contract layer, whether it be a machine learning layer. If you have access to data, which is a separate issue on the data governance side, you can't really enable AI if you're not putting much data that's actually at least accessible in some way on the blockchain. 
and the nodes uh, agree to how we share that data. So I think we need to rethink how we kind of are selling blockchain in, in a better term, and that is to look at it as an architecture instead of the full solution, and that it can integrate a lot of these different technologies together to form a more complete solution that wouldn't be available if these, if these different type of technology approaches were on their own. So uh, to me, that's very important. And then the very practical business issues, like in the pharmaceutical supply chain, going back to that again, is most of the pharmaceutical industry doesn't want to spend any money on compliance in the space. Like they want to, in, they want to uh, basically use compliance at what the minimal cost will be. So in that particular use case, there is even a law that might be you know, associated with blockchain because it maps well, but the industry is not ready to adopt it because they don't want to spend the money there. So that may not be the best use case because of these business concerns that uh, you know, are there in the industry. So I think those are real considerations we have to make. And my issue is, is that we see a lot of these you know, supply chain, blockchain use cases, but we really haven't thought pragmatically about some of those, those issues that are, that are going to impede those POCs coming into production. Thank you, Tim. We'll now give the um, affirmative two minutes to ask questions to the negative about that. Okay. Start. There's this term called information blocking. You know, it turns out our federal government very interested in why people, to your point, aren't moving off of POCs, aren't sharing data in production. And I actually argue that information blocking doesn't exist. Where there's a business case, an enabling technology, then data actually flows. So I guess the question is, you've described some use cases. Is the issue in your mind that we just don't have the incentives aligned properly? It's not so much that blockchain itself is insufficient for purpose. So, um, do you mind? Go ahead, yeah. That? yeah. So, the one thing I think that's really important is we don't have the policy framework to absorb these new forms of technology. So, a lot of times when it comes to regulatory making, we're trying to fit a new technology into an old regulatory framework. So, for example, Mobile applications, the FDA has been working on how to regulate mobile applications by fitting it into a medical device framework. We don't really have that policy framework that can absorb all the benefits that blockchain can provide. And I don't even think we have it within particular verticals. So I think one of the major issues to incentivize, if you're looking at it from a compliance perspective, not just from a business improvement process or those things that are more pragmatic and can really have their own business case on their own, then you need some sort of external incentive mechanism. And I would say that the government's moving in that direction, but in a lot of verticals, we don't have that. And that's one of the primary reasons why what I would call compliance-focused blockchains are not able to move off of the POC phase and get into production because there's not that added incentive. And also, there's not legal protection for some of the considerations that we're talking about right now. So I'd be curious to see here what you guys think is needed in that space. I'll make sure they include that in their last rebuttal so we know what's going on with that. Uh, we're going to allow each team to give their final rebuttals for, uh, for you. Since the affirmative has burden of proof, we're going to start with the negative rebuttal for four minutes, and then the affirmative will get to, uh, get to respond to that. You okay? Yep. Okay. Uh, so I just want to address uh, some uh, 
pros, but also cons of a couple of unique aspects uh, of blockchain uh, that we've discussed regarding the mutability and the ability for longitudinal uh, data collection. So specifically, um, Dr. Halakma's uh, example about malpractice and having um, a you know true record uh, of uh, and being able to prove that it's not fake, um, but actually uh, just also want to think about an unintended consequence, for example, of a longitudinal record um, that a doctor is responsible for, you know, you had all the information, why didn't you see that when I was 12 and now I'm 80 that, um, you know, this happened to me. And so um, being, ex uh, you know, we will need basically actionable data items, not just you know, having access to all the data, but making it actionable for doctors um, and to protect them um, from malpractice, um, as well as regarding um, trust, uh, and, and that's uh, a needed uh, characteristic um, to pr uh, support the data, uh, the patient-doctor uh, relationship and sharing of information. Um, but I also uh, question um, blockchain um, and this ideal user, uh, for example, uh, my advisor, has looked at, for example, um, the implications of having this launch, uh, longitudinal electronic health record in immigrants, for example, with uncertain immigration status not being um, as uh, open with uh, sharing their health information. Also, minors, um, pediatricians are uh, not entering in the correct information. So uh, they'll, uh, for example, if they speak to minors about uh, drugs and alcohol and they're under uh, 21 or 18, we'll just say, oh, spoke about uh, at a high level, but actually that's code for them knowing that they uh, that this uh, patient is using drugs and alcohol. Um, and so, uh, while the the technology uh, you know supports trust, uh, there are still uh, this uh, you know doctor patient relationship um, and uh, non ideal users uh, reflecting um, you know issues uh, of trust. And with the final word, we'll have the affirmative rebuttal uh, for four minutes. Uh, uh, who's, who's starting off? He's going to go two, uh, and I'll go two. Okay. See, equanimity go, here. They're going to divide it up. We'll, we'll, see how, we'll see how that functions. All right. Uh, so Dr. Halamka has been at this a lot longer than, than, than I have. I, and it's not my day-to-day -day job now. But for a year, uh, I worked for HHS uh, working on the Connect and the Direct projects, if any of you remember that. Um, uh, and these were technologies to encourage the sharing of patient records between organizations that were put into production between the VA, DOD, Kaiser, I believe, and a few other organizations. Uh, and then Direct went off and became uh, uh, its own interesting project. Um, but these were still limited and actually getting even single-digit percentage usage out there, let alone double-digit percentage, um, because of these concerns about trust. Because no one wanted to either, you know, part of it was the data is the new oil and we have to hoard it. Um, but a bigger part of it was no one wanted to inadvertently enable the Gmail of healthcare records, right? Uh, and there's lots of other use cases we can and should talk about where blockchain technology is essential to them. But healthcare records are not just the moonshot. They're the key to solving a lot of deeply entrenched problems in the healthcare space. And in the 10 years since I spent that one year at HHS, uh, we haven't made measurable progress on getting health data, health records to be more portable. Uh, this is the only technology that's emerged in, those, in the last 10 years that can make a dent in that. Okay. So I would argue, as you have argued, that blockchain does not solve every problem for every use case. 
But I think there are two areas where it can be extremely helpful, and I don't see credible alternatives. And that first is this issue of data integrity and audit that we talked through. It's the fact that we have shared your data appropriately, and you can look at where we shared it, how, you know, from point of use to point, point of generation to point of use where uh, it flowed. But second, and we've been talking about the notion of smart contracts and consent. In the United States, we have 50 different states, which means we have 50 different privacy policies and 50 different consent models. And so if you want to send data from New Hampshire to Massachusetts, what do you do? Well, I'll tell you, the best I can do is ask your preference and figure out how to respect your preference. And right now, I don't really have a very good way to do this. I mean, we can all sign various kinds of participation agreements and try to cover ourselves legally. But if I could simply reference a public ledger that had your consent preferences and then respect those, I think consent would be clearer to us You could all. even be audited against them. Exactly. And that, I mean, this is regulatory technology at the end of the day. This is something that the regulators uh, in other industries are learning more about and embracing as a way to digitize industries without disenfranchising the role of regulators in uh, helping make sure that those, those markets develop in a way that uh, 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 protects the interests of those who are uh, not empowered in that system. And so uh, I, I, I think as a way to help protect privacy and integrity of patients records. I mean, the, I think half the reason we're here is HHS ran this great essay contest in 2016 asking for use cases in the healthcare industry related to blockchain tech. And at the cost of starting with a hammer and asking, are there any nails out there? 75 different responses came in when they expected a, a handful. Uh, and, and they kind of uncovered something. And so occasionally, once in a while, it's worth saying, hey, we discovered a new kind of hammer. What can we do with it? And do I have a few seconds left? Yes. And, and since my team won that competition, um, <laughs> what we had proposed was that there were two use cases. One is metadata storage, not actual on-chain yeah. storage of data, and consent yep. storage. And you know, we're, we're using this in production now, and so far, so good. I have to let our audience in on our little secret. So each side during preparation was told before this debate started that they would have five minutes of preparation time available if they needed it. Not only are they able to talk about these issues and share their knowledge with you, but they had no need of the extra prep time. Uh, can we just give them a hand for their performance today? No sharing information. Thank you very much. We have lots of time when we get to have panels and talk to things, but too often those moments are preaching to the choir. So the notion of us actually having contested views and talking about these ideas and getting at some of those nuanced issues is important not only to development, but important to move these ideas forward. So thank you for listening. Um, I think that these panels have also done a job, great job in getting us back on schedule for the day. So we hope that you've enjoyed uh, this panel. And it's given you some things to think about on blockchain as the day moves forward. So enjoy the rest of the conference. And thank you again for joining us for this opening presentation. Thank you.